Morning, Church of Beloved. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm glad you guys made it. I think it's pretty cool what they're doing out there on uh, Lakeshore Drive. And um, But yeah, it's good that everybody's here and gathered here today. Um, if you're new here or if you haven't been with us recently, uh, we're in this middle of this sermon series uh, about can I really change? Can I really change? Because change is a difficult thing, right? I mean, a lot of us, you know, we get to a certain age and we think, whether we kind of verbalize it or not, we think we just are the way that we are. Nothing's really changed. We've tried to change so many times, and maybe we've failed. Maybe we've disappointed ourselves, but we've come, kind of come to learn to accept ourselves for the way that we are, and we kind of don't believe this idea that we can really change. But the gospel, what we hear about in the scriptures, what we read about in the scriptures, is all about life-changing, transformative change. The question then becomes, how do I really change? So we're in this sermon series, <clears throat> excuse me, and we've been talking about things like how do I change through the Holy Spirit? You know, how do I change through suffering? That's what we talked about last week. But this week I want to talk in the title of this sermon is we change and how do we change through the imperfect church? How do we change through the imperfect church? And there's, there's a little subtlety there that I really want to point out. I'm not asking how do we change the imperfect church? How do we change the unimpressive church? No, I'm saying how are we changed by this unimpressive, ordinary church? And so if you'll go with me, I want to start by telling you this story, and it's a story in the Bible that once upon a time there was this man, and he was important, he was accomplished, he was impressive, he was powerful. He was the commander of a great army. He was a valiant soldier. He's highly regarded. You could say that he was a great man. But he was ill. There was, he had this terrible skin disease called leprosy. And so this great, powerful, accomplished, successful man was inflicted with a terrible disease that he could do nothing about. And that was killing him. So the story goes, he travels to Israel to seek out this great prophet, Elisha. He hears that this person is a, is a messenger, a prophet from God. He speaks on behalf of God. He can do miracles. So this man sets out on this long journey, and he packs all these riches and all these gifts, and he says, I'm going to go seek out this prophet of Israel, Elisha, to receive my healing. And so with all these, all these gifts and all this money, these riches, he makes his way all the way to Elisha's doorstep, and he says, basically, I want you to come outside and to heal me. On his doorstep. And Elijah, what does he do? He sends a messenger, and the text says, and he says to him through the messenger, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. See, Naaman comes all this way. Here's this guy who thinks he's so great and so impressive and so accomplished. He comes bringing all these gifts. He travels this long distance on this long journey. He shows up on this guy's doorstep. The person he heard can heal him of this disease that is robbing him of life. And Elisha doesn't even exit his house. He doesn't even come and speak to him face to face. He just sends a messenger to tell him what to do. 
And how did this great man, Naaman, respond? This is what it says. Naaman went away angry, and he said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spots, and cure me of this leprosy. And basically say, aren't there rivers in Damascus? Aren't there rivers back home that I could just wash in? What is so great about this Jordan River? Couldn't I just save myself the trip, and couldn't I just stay home and wash in a river? And so he turns away, and he went off in a rage. And this is what Naaman is basically saying. I thought that this prophet would do something impressive. I thought he was going to blow my mind. I thought he was going to do something that surpassed my expectations. I mean, could he not even just exit his house and wave his hands over my spots? Do something. Instead, he just sends a message and tells me to go wash in some river. It's interesting, right? And do you see why Naaman is offended? He's offended because this answer from Elisha is just too ordinary. He's, it's offensively unimpressive to him. He came here looking for something, a miracle, an act of God, and all he got was instructions through a messenger to go and wash in some river. I want to suggest in a lot of ways that all of us here today, we're a little bit like Naaman. All of us, we want something impressive and we seek after something spectacular. Like we love the spectacular. We crave the impressive. We want things that make us go, wow, that's awesome. And we're so captivated by that which is impressive that we, we long for it so much that we're even just happy to be associated or in proximity to something that's impressive. Think about this idea of corporate sponsorship. Right? What, what kind of shoes does Stephen Curry wear? Do you guys know? Under Armour. They said that because he signed a sponsorship or an endorsement deal with Under Armour, they, I think their market valuation went up a billion dollars. That's how valuable that is. What kind of clubs does Tiger Woods golf with? I think it's Nike. I could be wrong, but whatever it is, I'm not a golfer, but let's just assume that it's Nike. He's made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, multiple times over his winnings in golf, just from the fact that he endorses a product. And look, we're all, most of us, we're not under the same childish disillusionment that if we wear Stephen Curry's shoes or we golf with Tiger Woods golf clubs that we'll actually play more like these people. But this entire industry is based around the idea that all of us just want to be associated with someone who is magnificent, spectacular, or impressive. And can I say this? A lot of us, we approach the church in the same way. We want to be associated with impressive and magnificent and accomplished churches. 
If you're a Christian, I'd be surprised if there isn't something in your heart that doesn't want to be associated with a church that has everything together because it makes us feel good. We love it. In a lot of ways, we choose kind of to sponsor our church. We pick out a church that reflects our values, our standards, our preferences, and we sponsor it with our time, our services, and our finances. We say, that's what I'm about. That's the church that I want to be associated with. That's the church that I want to sponsor. And we see that this is true in the church in Corinth. Because ordinary is a bit too ordinary for them, and they're looking for something, someone impressive to sponsor. In today's passage, starts off with uh, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in some way, in, in the same mind, in the same judgment. See, there's, there's disunity in this church. There's, 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 there's division in this, word, in this church. And this word for division in Greek, it literally means to be torn apart. This division is tearing apart this church. And what is causing this division? What is causing this quarreling? What is causing this Corinthian church to be torn apart? At its root, I would argue that it's people trying to fix the church, to make it better, to prove it, and to make it more impressive. It's not exactly in the text, but this is what I imagine happening. Paul, this apostle, the writer of this letter, excuse me, <coughs> some time ago, planted this church, and he taught them the gospel. He taught them about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who was sent from heaven to live on this earth. He was sent to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that when he went to the cross, he died the death that we should have died, and, and, and our sins were forgiven. We became redeemed and restored through that act. But not only that, he didn't just get our sins forgiven, but his righteousness was credited to us. So we're not just forgiven, but we could be called sons and daughters of God. And I think he taught this gospel message to this church, and then he left. And this early church plant looked at their surroundings, looked at the city of Corinth, and thought to themselves, we got to come up with something better than that. This church, this city is too educated. This city is too uh, sophisticated. It's cosmopolitan. We got to come up with something that's more attractional, something that's more appealing, something that'll draw people in more. And so, what do they do? They started looking for a sponsor. And some of them said in the next verse, I'll follow Paul. That's who I'll identify with. That's who I think our church should identify with. The guy who planted us, the Apostle Paul. And maybe they said themselves, said this to themselves. Maybe they said, there's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. That's the criteria that they might have chosen. And Paul, they might have argued, is the one with the greatest story. He's the teacher of the law who used to persecute the church. He's the one that Jesus chose to reveal himself to. And now he's an apostle. That's an amazing story of redemption. And they would have been like, I'm with Paul. But then maybe some other people will come and interject. They'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 Paul's cool, but he's the least of the apostles. He's the rookie. He's the one with the least amount of experience. We should associate ourselves with Cephas or Peter, an original disciple. 
He's one who spent so much time with Jesus, one of the 12, but even amongst the 12, one of the inner circle of Jesus' apostles. Jesus told him that he was the rock upon which he would build this church. So we should associate ourselves with Peter. I'm with Peter. Others might chime in, forget the apostles. Let's be more progressive. Let's align ourselves with this guy, Apollos, who's described as being eloquent, muddy in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit, instructed in the way of the Lord. He's like your celebrity preacher, so gifted and eloquent. And like, I'm with Apollos. See, all of us, we want to be in a church with a great story. We want to be in a church with a gifted speaker. We want to be in a church that's attractional, that's spectacular, that's impressive. And this thinking is what caused this church in Corinth to be torn apart. And if we know anything about our church, you, if you know anything about our church, you can probably relate to this. Because we're not a perfect church. There's a lot of areas of improvement. I wouldn't say that we're even particularly a very impressive church. We're ordinary in a lot of ways. And so there are obviously a lot of different opinions about what we could change about our church so that we might be more impressive. And these differences can fester and people can take sides and soon enough you'll find division, blaming and finger-pointing, the idea that one idea is better or wiser than another, that one camp is better reason than the other, and at the root of all this is pride. A sense that we know what's better for the church, that we have the answers, that we have the wisdom. Or even this idea that we're entitled to something better. A sense that we know the ways to improve this ordinary church. It is pride that makes us believe that we can fix or that we can change this unimpressive church. But what if we let go of that pride for a moment? A sense that, uh, what if we stopped assuming that we know best? What if we let go of the idea that it was our responsibility to change this church? What if we instead, from a point of humility, from a posture of humility, we believe that God was responsible for this church and that he knew what was best? What if we believe that God didn't give us an unimpressive church for it to be changed by us, but he gave us this unimpressive church so that we could be changed by it? That's what we're going to be talking about today. There's three points. The first is the unimpressive church reflects an unimpressive gospel, and that's a good thing. The church, like the gospel, is intentionally unimpressive, and the unimpressive gospel shows its power in the unimpressive church. So, the first point is that the unimpressive church reflects an unimpressive gospel, and that's a good thing. And we have to, that's kind of the first thing we have to wrap our heads around, is that the gospel, from the world's view, from a human understanding, is distinctly unimpressive. Just follow with me. I know a lot of you guys are ready to throw me out, but it's true. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, be empty, the cross of Christ be emptied by its power. That's what Paul came to do. He's like, I didn't come to you to entertain you. I didn't come to you to stimulate your intellect. I came to you to preach Christ on the cross. 
nothing else, lest it be emptied of its power. What's the gospel that he preaches? It's Christ crucified. You see it again in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Paul's saying that's our gospel message. Christ crucified. You skip a little bit ahead to chapter 2, verse 2. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul is saying is his gospel message. Christ crucified, nothing else. But we don't like to talk about Christ crucified today, do we? At least not by itself. Because whenever we talk about Christ and the cross, what do we do? We quickly get to the benefits. Jesus died on the cross, sure. But look at what he won for you. Look at what he accomplished for you. Our sins are forgiven. We're redeemed and restored. We receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. We, 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 we talk about the cross, but we're like, oh, but look at the benefits. When we talk about the cross, we're, we're, we're often quick to talk about the resurrection. We might talk about Jesus on the cross. He died, but we're quick to say, you know, three days later, he conquered death. Yeah, it was a tragedy of the cross, but soon after there was victory. But Paul is saying in this verse, all through this verse, he's not saying he came to preach Christ crucified and the resurrection. He didn't say that he came to preach Christ crucified and how it benefits your life. He didn't say he came to preach Christ crucified and children's ministry curriculums and powerful worship sets and new Bible study materials, although those are all good things and worthy of instruction. Paul is saying, I came to preach Christ crucified, and that's it. That's it. So we're going to sit with that for a little bit. Christ crucified, because I think we, we, we rush off too, too quickly most of the time. Christ crucified, because those are two words that should not be put together. They're like magnets when you flip them around and they're just opposed to each other. You shouldn't be able to bring them together. There's a d- dynamic between those two words, Christ and crucified, to the, that to the world it's just madness. Those words don't come together because the first word, Christ, it's not just his last name. It's his position, it's his role, it's identity, it's who he is. He's the Messiah, he's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's the Savior, he's the King. Even if you look back at Psalm 2, we see a hint of what's to come. It says the king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Christ saying, let us burst their bonds apart bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. And what he's saying here, when God is speaking about the Christ, he's saying that the kings and the rulers of this world can try to overthrow him, can try to conspire against him, but it matters little. Because this Christ is greater than the kings and the rulers. He's God's anointed. He is the Christ. It's a big word, and it's loaded with so much weight. There's no title higher. There's no better way to describe him. There's no other way to explain it other than that Jesus is the Christ. 
It's powerful. But a funny thing happens when you attach crucified to it. It starts to blow people's minds. This can happen in other circumstances when you attach a word to something and it totally changes its meaning. If I was to, here's an example, if I was to tell you guys that I was a billionaire, and it was actually true, if I was to tell you guys that, wouldn't that do something to you? You guys would probably think that's pretty cool. Maybe you guys would go home and tell your friends, be like, there's a pastor in my church who's actually a billionaire. He has more money than he could ever spend, but he chooses to spend his time studying the word and trying to shepherd our people. And maybe that would be an attractional thing that other people are like, hey, I want to go to the church with the billionaire pastor. That would be pretty cool, right? Because that word has an association that's powerful. But now imagine if I said that I'm a bankrupt billionaire. If I told you that I'm a bankrupt billionaire. Instead, you'd think that you're a joke. You're a failure. How could you blow a billion dollars? What did you spend it on? You're a loser. How pathetic. I think you might want to find another church because this guy obviously lacks something in judgment. Being a bankrupt billionaire. And that's what happens when we talk about Christ crucified. When you say that Jesus is the Christ, people might be like, really? That's impressive. That's spectacular. Tell me more. But then when you add that he was crucified, they might say, what a loser. What a joke. The Christ that's crucified, that's useless. It's an oxymoron. It's not impressive. In fact, he's a failure. He's a loser. That's what Christ crucified means. And if you're a believer right now, you're, maybe you're even getting a little bit angry with me. And if you've been in our church long enough, you have to stop that little voice in your head right now. Stop that voice right now that's telling you, well, but the cross is beautiful. And stop that voice in your head from telling you that it's glorious. That comes later. But instead, I think it, it makes sense to actually just sit with this idea to feel the horror here. A lot of us, we, we wear crosses around our necks, or we grew up in homes, and maybe there was a cross in our kitchen, in our living room. This is not something that they did in the first century Corinthian church. This is the, being crucified is the most gruesome, most torturous, most shameful way to kill somebody, reserved for barbar- barbarians or slaves, the, the worst of criminals. To be crucified was not a heroic thing. That's something that we're like imparting into this understanding of this Jesus and the cross thing. But to the first Corinthian church, that was totally foreign to them. The cross was the height of shame. It was being publicly humiliated. Nobody was impressed by someone hanging dead on a cross. When he was there, Christ was exposed. He was naked. It was shameful. That's what it means when Christ was crucified. Even if you look at the text in verse 23, Paul doesn't say that Christ crucified is beautiful or victorious, but he says that it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's not something they're like, oh, that makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside. They're like, no, this is outrageous and ridiculous. To the Jewish person, Christ crucified, it's shocking blasphemy. This might offend you guys, but, but just bear with me. Saying Christ crucified is as offensive 
maybe even more so than saying Christ the child molester or Christ the rapist. We have to get into the understanding of what it meant to be associated with crucifixion. In Jewish thought, anyone who hung on a tree was under the curse of God. The Messiah King would not be cursed by Jewish understanding. And Christ crucified was folly to the Gentiles. The word here literally means madness. The Gentiles hear that a Jewish man died on a, on a, on a wooden cross, on a nondescript hill in a nondescript place in this world, and his death determines, determines the eternal fate of every person in this world, and they would have been like, that is madness, that is a joke. And I think we can understand that, because imagine if you heard somewhere today that a man was executed by authorities in a small Middle Eastern country, and he was claiming to be the savior of the world. Such a story would not even get a second thought from any of us. If today you were to walk past a garbage dump where a naked man was seen hanging by nails on a tree, covered in blood, and someone told you your only hope in life is in believing that this man is God and you are entirely dependent upon him as your judge, your master, your lord, and your king, you would walk away offended and outraged. At best, you might feel pity for this man. You have to understand that Christ on the cross is unimpressive. You have to understand that the world is not impressed by Christ crucified. Paul is not saying here, it seems impressive, but it really is impressive. You know, I'm older than you guys, but back in like the 90s, they used to have these movies where like a cool, popular jock dude would decide to try to date a nerdy, art student, unattractive girl, and he would turn her and she would be beautiful. But you always knew she was beautiful, she was just wearing glasses and she had her hair down. And that's not what Paul is saying about Christ crucified. He's not saying in a, he's saying in a worldly sense, it's totally and utterly unimpressive. It's not a diamond in the rough. It doesn't look impressive, but underneath it's really, really beautiful. He's saying from a worldly perspective, it's unimpressive. And we have to embrace that. If you're trying to associate with something that is going to be impressive to the world, if you're trying to associate with something that your friends are going to be like, oh, wow, that's really cool that you do or that you believe in that. If you're trying to gain something, gain something of value in the way that you identify yourself to the people that you interact with, then you've chosen the wrong thing because Christ is not impressive to our world. And that brings us to our second point. The church, like the gospel, is intentionally unimpressive. It's intentionally unimpressive. Why did, why did God make the gospel unimpressive? Was it an accident? Did he mean to impress us and, it just, and he just totally misread the situation? I would say if you look at the text, there's something very intentional about God giving us an impress, unimpressive gospel. And it points to the fact that our human craving for the impressive is a serious disease. If you look at verses 18 and 19, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, 
and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. When is the last time that you said you were going to destroy something and you actually meant it? It's a really strong word. It's so strong that we, we hardly ever say it. I'm going to destroy something. But that's the word that God is using here, quoting a passage from 29. God says, I'm going to destroy human wisdom. There's something about human nature and the pursuit of it that is not just neutral, but it's actually directly opposed to God and his wisdom. And God says that he will destroy it, and he will destroy it how? By using this unimpressive gospel. If you're seeking a wisdom that elevates humanity, that's all about us, God's saying that there's something very deeply wrong with that and that he will destroy it because it's opposed to him. And continue in the verse, verse 20 says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul's like saying, bring out your brightest and your smartest and your most accomplished. And tell me what their pursuit of earthly wisdom has won themselves or won us. Do we not struggle with the same vices and the same sins that this Corinthian church was struggling with thousands of years ago? Have all of our pursuit in technology, I mean, we've, we've improved technology, but the core elemental struggles of man, are they not still the same? And continues, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so, so, so look at that text. For since in the wisdom of God, I would argue that he didn't even have to write that. Because read that without that first part. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That statement makes itself it makes sense itself without that first part. But I would argue by saying for since in the wisdom of God, it points to an intentionality, a purpose, a plan. God was saying that he was, gonna, that he was being deliberate and it would please him to rebuke the wisdom of this world. Verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And so the Jews demanded these signs. They wanted God to do a miracle. They wanted to see the impressive, the powerful. The Greeks sought something intellectually stimulating. But they both sought to be impressed. They both said, this is what I need. This is my expectation from God. This is the standard that he has to meet. And if he meets it, then I will believe. And God knew this. He knew what they required. And instead of giving them signs, instead of giving them wisdom, he gave them Christ crucified, a stumbling block. God could have impressed them. He could impress you today, but he chooses not to. And I think you see it in the life of Jesus because Christ chose the unimpressive. Listen, if Christ had wanted to be impressive, he had quite a lot going for him. And he never set out to impress 
anybody. He was never sitting there trying to impress people. He was never trying to show off so people would think that he was great. A lot of times he'd be like, hey, don't tell people about this miracle. And that's so different than you or me. You know, last night, uh, yesterday was actually my, my wedding anniversary. It's 11 years. And we spent the whole day together, me and my wife, and then we ended up going to a wedding, and we got back a little bit late. My wife went off to wash up, and I went into the kitchen, and I turned on the lights, and I noticed that a light bulb was out. And that's one of the roles or responsibility that my wife has just, in her wisdom, decided to say, this is your job for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Never asked for it, but it was just kind of given to me. You are the light bulb man. And so... Over the years, I, you know, first couple years, I might have resisted. But I got, wait, why, did, why didn't I get a say in this? But, you know, after five or six or 11 years, I've come to accept that that's just my responsibility now. And so I saw one of these light bulbs were out. And so, like, I went to the, the utility closet, I grabbed the light bulb, and I was about to change it. And this thought came in my mind. And it was this. Maybe I should just leave that light bulb in there for a little bit. Maybe I should just leave it there and not change it so quickly. And you know why? It's because if I'm too good at changing light bulbs, if I do it so quickly so that she never notices, then I'll never get credit for it. <laughs> I literally thought about leaving that light bulb for a day so that she could see it and I could change it and she would be impressed by me. And as ridiculous as that is, all of us are the same way. Think about how you act or what you talk about when you go out on your first dates. Think about how you present yourself or the thoughts that are running through your mind when you go to job interviews. Think about what you think about after you meet people for the first time. And I bet you're thinking things like, were they impressed by me? Did they find me interesting? witty, funny? Are they attracted to me? I wonder if they like me. And again, were they impressed by me? We're totally insecure and we really, really want people to be impressed by us. Even right now, there's part of me that wants you to be impressed by me. But Jesus is radically different. He never did that. Jesus never wrestled with those thoughts. Do they like me? I'm not sure. Are they impressed? What can I do to get them to be more impressed with me? He never thought those questions. Jesus is not interested in impressing you. And that's why the gospel is profoundly unimpressive. It's Christ crucified. Well, think about this verse, Isaiah 53. We found it in Isaiah 53. It reads this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and what? And we esteemed him not. Think about all the things that you don't like about yourself. Think about the, the struggles you have with your physical appearance or things you wish you could change about your personality or even your past. I bet there's some nights when you stay awake wishing that you had the power to just change that thing about you. 
and you struggle because you don't. You wish you were more beautiful. You wish you were more impressive. You wish you were more attractive, but yet you aren't. Jesus, on the other hand, actually had the power. Right? It says that it says he had no form or majesty, but he was God. He could have come in a form in which we would have esteemed him, that we would have been impressed by him, but he chose not to. And then you see it in Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though Jesus was the same nature of God, he was equal just as powerful, just as glorious, just as spectacular and magnificent, even though he could have come in all that majesty and power and glory, he chose to give it up. He chose to empty himself, and he chose to go to the cross. Jesus chose the unimpressive things. And that's no accident. We know that the gospel is unimpressive in the world's view by design because Jesus himself chose not to come in a form that was impressive. And I think in this passage we see it too. In, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, Paul lives this out. He too chose the unimpressive. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not impossible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power. So that your faith might rest, not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. We need to understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I might have shown up with more eloquence and I could have taken an impressive, strong form approach, but I actually chose not to. I chose to come in weakness and in fear and in trembling, preaching only Christ crucified. And you got to understand, Paul, for those of you guys who don't know, he's basically a PhD or like a professor of theology and religion and the law. And we see it played out through all the New Testament that he's a great writer. Look at Romans. I mean, just logical and reasonable and clear and articulate. He had his strengths and he could have relied on those things. He could have just said, I'll just correct the Corinthian church, or I'll just keep on, or, or, or instead of like going myself, I'll just send a letter instead of going myself. I'll just play up to my strengths. He could have brought, amongst, brought, brought with him another person like Mark or, or Peter, or he could have brought another powerful speaker like Apollos. But instead, Paul decided to come in person himself in his weakness, even though he wasn't a great and eloquent speaker, and he intentionally did it so that he would just bring Christ crucified. 
And that's a really big idea for us because it's the opposite of what many of us would choose for ourselves. When you go through your closet each morning, you don't pick your worst outfit or the outfit that makes you look the worst. You choose your best. When you go out on your dates, you don't choose the stories that you tried telling to people and they didn't think were funny at all. You choose your funniest stories, the ones that you think have the greatest possibility to land. We always choose what is most best and most impressive about ourselves. But here's Paul saying, I choose to be in weakness. I choose the unimpressive. And this is a big idea for our church because sometimes in a church like us, ours, we can unconsciously start to rely on our achievements or our accomplishments. An idea that numbers or influence and accomplishments that the church should point to as evidence of its value. But really in the midst, even though everything says that's the way that we should define success and our value, we see in the life of Paul and we see in the life of, more importantly, Christ, that there's actually a choice. That we can choose the unimpressive. We can choose the humble. We can actually choose to reject options that the world recognizes as superior and instead lean even harder into the idea that our value is only found in Christ crucified. It's intentional. It's a choice. Christ crucified is intentionally unimpressive. And why would we want our church to look any differently? The last point is this. The unimpressive gospel shows its power in the unimpressive church. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There's a power when the cross of Christ is preached, a power that's not dependent on eloquence or wisdom. Do we really believe that? Or do we think that we have to package the gospel, the message of a crucified Christ, into something that's more attractive or stimulating to people? 1 Corinthians 26 continues, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And see, the world tells us that if you want to make an impact, if you want to make a difference in this world, then what do you have to do? You have to surround yourself by the most educated, wise, impressive, accomplished people. Think about a board of directors of a company or look at the people that you even associate with. You pick the best that you can. But Paul's pointing out to something really, really, really interesting here. He's reminding these people that you weren't wise. You weren't powerful. You weren't noble. You weren't all that great. You don't have all the answers. You can't fix the unimpressive church because you're an unimpressive people. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It's a good reminder. Spurgeon says, I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. 
and he must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. And saying, remember who you are, church. Don't let any wisdom, knowledge, strategy, competency, skill, talent, experience, don't let it puff yourself up. He continues by saying, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. We came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to double dip with Spurgeon again. And this is what he says. How can we then be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See his thorn crown. Mark his scored shoulders. Still gushing with in crimson rills. See his hands and feet given up to the rough iron spikes his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the the horrid shriek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you've never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, then you do not know him. You're so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. And this is the idea that God chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He he chose the low to to despise. He chose the low and the despised in the world. Why? Because he wants all the glory. He wants all the glory. Because if we're a impressive, magnificent, accomplished people, and we come together as a church and we do magnificent, spectacular, interesting things, then who gets the glory? We do. If we start to define ourselves by the programs or the strategies, and programs and strategies are good things, but if we choose to define ourselves by those things and their success or their failures, if that becomes our identity, then who gets the glory? We do. Who are we boasting in? if it's not us. Therefore, for us as a church, the basis for a call to action around unity is simply that we have to set ourselves aside, unsurprised by the ordinary, unimpressive church around us because we are ordinary, unimpressive people, and to preach the message of Christ crucified. It's foolishness, again, to those people who are looking for the impressive, but to us it is the power of God. We can approach this by looking at the inverse, again, because if it's about us, it'll be about us. But if it's about God, it'll be about him. If we gather together as a people who humble ourselves and simply live as people transformed by Christ crucified, Where then is the division? 
If our shared confidence is truly found in shared life-changing encounter with Christ crucified and not in something else that's clever or interesting or attractive about our organization or competent even about our leadership, then we will always have more, far more common ground than differences amongst us. In Christ crucified and in Christ alone, we become one, and that's how we find unity. Do you believe that today, church? And again, it's not saying that to improve or to better our church is a bad thing. We should practice when we're going up for, when we're serving our worship team. We should study when we're giving a teaching. But what is the reason for that? Is it so that we can boast in ourselves or is it so that we can boast in God? I think if we can, I think that we can only truly learn to boast in God if we learn to impress, to accept and embrace the unimpressive nature of our church. And we'll only learn to embrace the unimpressive nature of our church when we learn to embrace the unimpressive nature of Christ on the cross. To close, I want to bring it back to 2 Kings. After Naaman was enraged by this ordinary, unimpressive call to action by Elisha, he's, he, he wants to walk away and just give up on the whole thing. He's like, I wanted it to be spectacular, and it's not, so forget this. And the text continues, but his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The ordinary things for Naaman and for us even, they can be a stumbling block. It can be foolishness, and it can be folly. And yet only when we choose that which stumbles, that which seems like foolishness and folly, will we ever understand and experience the awesome transformative power of God. What if God is telling us today as a church to accept the ordinary? Maybe he might not be telling us to go and wash in the Jordan River some seven times, but he might be saying to you, just be part of a church that's not perfect, that might not meet all of your expectations, that might not be as impressive as you might want to associate yourself with. And maybe saying that's the way that you'll find healing for what hurts you. That's a way that you might find salvation. And that's a way that you might fully understand and more fully understand the, the cross of Christ. By embracing the ordinary, by humbling ourselves, this is how we're healed, this is how we're saved. And that's how we can be changed through an unimpressive church. We humbly let God be God. We let him do the work, and we let him receive the glory. Let's pray.